Denver 8 TV, your city, your source. This presentation of the Denver Press Club is made possible with support from the Denver Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. Hello and welcome to another BookBeat event at the Denver Press Club brought to you by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado Pro Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. And our guest today is Denny Dressman, a longtime Rocky Mountain News veteran, um, as, both as a, in the uh, editorial area but also in management. And that's something we should talk about a little bit later as well. It's unusual to make that transition. Uh, his book is Heard But Not Seen, Richard Nixon, Frank Robinson, and the All-Star Game's Most Debated Play. And that debated play involved Ray Fossey and Pete Rose. It was a play that 16 million people saw on TV in the 1970 All-Star Game at Crosley Field, 50,000 people at at the stadium saw it. Young sports writer Denny Dressman did not see it. <laughs> and that's a lot of what this book is about. Um, it's, it's an incredible experience. And so I know you wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit about this first. So give us an overview of what happened that night. Yeah, I, I've got a little PowerPoint that, that we'll run through. And um, I like, uh, first of all, if, if you didn't know, I, uh, the, the basis for this book my own background is that I worked in Cincinnati at the Enquirer for 13 years. And uh, at the outset of that time, when I was hired as a sports writer, a uh, young sports writer, um, I had the good fortune to cover the last game at Crosley Field, the first game at Riverfront Stadium, the 1970 All-Star Game, which occurred at Riverfront about two weeks after the stadium opened, and the 1970 World Series, uh, at the end of that season. And uh, all of those things uh, factor into the telling of the story of the experience that I had at the All-Star Game. Um, the, I like to tell people that, that the book really and the story really revolves around uh, two or three quotes. Uh, the first one is from Pete Rose, um, who uh, I interviewed the day before. I, I had the opportunity to do some advances on the game. and. Uh, I talked to a number of Reds players uh, who were there, uh, including Tommy Helms, who told the story of his experience playing in, a war in an All-Star game a couple of years earlier, where he went in hard at second base. And uh, after the game, someone questioned why he would do that. And then in talking to Pete Rose, uh, Pete gave me this famous quote that said, I play it like any other game. I play it to win. And uh, as events unfolded that night, that's exactly what he did. The other quote comes from Richard Nixon, who was President of the United States at that time, and uh, an amazingly avid baseball fan. Uh, I didn't realize that in 1970, but uh, when you look into his history, he was, I would say, the most passionate baseball fan of all the presidents, and that includes the one who owned the Texas Rangers for a time, George Bush. <laughs> Um, and his famous quote is, I never leave a game before the last pitch. Because in baseball, as in life, and especially politics, you never know what will happen. 
And that, in fact, is uh, again prophetic uh, for this particular, uh, this particular evening, this particular game. Um, my, my story unfolds in what I refer to as down under, in the bowels of Riverfront Stadium, a brand new stadium that had opened two weeks before. And uh, there was question as recently, as early as the 1st of June, whether the game would be played in Cincinnati, whether or not Riverfront Stadium would be ready. And uh, Major League Baseball was prepared to move the game to Atlanta uh, if Riverfront Stadium wasn't ready. And, and the reason for that doubt is the stadium was supposed to be ready for the start of the 1970 season but it wasn't nearly complete, it was behind schedule. And so the Reds, instead of ending Crosley Field with the last game of the 1969 season, actually played into June in Crosley Field. And so as, as they raced to uh, get the stadium finished, there was, there was this doubt and uh, it was significant enough that Major League Baseball had to have a contingency plan and that was to go to Atlanta. In fact, at, during the during the uh, game, the All-Star game, uh, even though the playing surface and the stands and that were ready, there were some technical problems, one of which was the, the scoreboard in center field went dark in the fourth inning for a period of time. Um, down under plays a significant part in, uh, in the story, as I'll get to in a minute. Um, a lot has changed about the All-Star game since 1970. Um, the slide I have up there is the uh, is the uh, All-Star Game program. Uh, aside from the fact that it sold for a dollar, and when can you get an All-Star Game program for a dollar now, um, the uh, logos of all the major league teams are on the face of that program. If you count them, there are 24, not 30. So we had six fewer teams in 1970 to start with. But Expos a lot changed. I see the Expos there too. Marshall. The Expos are in there. Yeah, the Expos were still still alive and kicking. Um, several things changed. The first big thing is free agency. That's a picture of Annie Messersmith, who was the pioneer of free agency. Before free agency, the only time players from either league saw each other was either in spring training when the games didn't count the All-Star Game or when the two best teams in baseball met in the World Series. There were no playoffs and so it was only those two teams. And so if you were a, if you were a big star in, uh, in either league, odds are number one, you were gonna spend your career in that league unless, unless there was a blockbuster trade because the best players didn't get to move and they were rarely traded. Um, and so, your chance to match your, your skills against the best in the other league was in the All-Star Game. And so the All-Star Game really meant a lot then uh, in a different way than it does now. Um, the second thing is back then you did not have interleague play. play. Teams from each league did not play each other except in the World Series. So again, players who were stars in one league or the other didn't get a chance to, to square off against the other, uh, unlike now where it's happening virtually every day of the season. The third thing is fans didn't get to see the great players in the other league or even in some cases in the other cities except in the All-Star game. 
because you had the game of the week, and that was it, one game a week. And uh, that was often the Yankees or the marquee teams. And so there were a lot of, there were a lot of you know, great players that um, America didn't get to see except in the All-Star game, which was televised. And so that was a big deal. Now you have, you have the, the regional networks, Root Sports televises 155 Rockies games. You've got MLB Network. You've got ESPN showing a few games a week. You've got Fox. You've got a lot of different ways that you can see the best players, not to mention 24-hour cable sports shows that are showing highlights uh, around the clock. Another interesting thing about the, uh, about the uh, All-Star Game of 1970 and the history of it um, and, and my book goes into a lot of history of, of Cincinnati All-Star Games and Cincinnati All-Star history. And one of, the, one of the infamous moments in, in Cincinnati All-Star history came in 1957 when Cincinnati fans stuffed the ballot box and elected seven of the eight starters. The only starter who was not elected uh, was the first baseman, who was George Crow who was filling in for Ted Klozuski, who was hurt that year. Stan Musial, ever heard of him? Was, was the only non-red elected to the starting lineup. Well, Major League Baseball intervened at that time. The commissioner uh, invalidated the voting for a couple of players and named, a couple of players named Willie Mays and Hank Aaron to the starting lineup. Um, Wally Post, who was one of the Reds who was elected, was injured and couldn't play anyway, and Gus Bell was, was uh, made a reserve. Well, that happened because the Cincinnati Times-Star uh, launched a campaign. The Times-Star at that time was a dying newspaper, and it was a way for them to try to gain prominence in the Cincinnati market in their waning days. And so they published a ballot that said, vote early, vote often, and, uh, and listed the Reds players and without saying it overtly, strongly suggested that those were the players you should fill in in the blanks, and, and Reds fans did. Well, fast forward to 1970, that was the year that fan voting was restored. That was the first All-Star game, and ironically it's held in Cincinnati, where fans could elect the, the All-Stars again. Jump ahead to now, you have internet voting, and they actually encourage fans to stuff the ballot yeah. box. You can vote 35, 35 times, times yeah. for your favorite player. And what was happening in Kansas City? They took them up on it, and you almost had a Cincinnati with Kansas City. They've got, uh, I believe, four or five starters now and a couple of other reserves. So, so that was a big, a big difference then and a big deal uh, as, it, as it unfolded. So let me stop there for a second and, and, and give you the, the, uh, the, the background on the name of the book, Heard But Not Seen. Because Richard Nixon was, was present, and he was present to throw out the first pitch, but as I said, he was a tremendous baseball fan. He's the only president with his own baseball card. He's an honorary member of the Baseball Writers of America. He was hired by the owners to arbitrate a dispute with the umpires over additional pay when the uh, playoffs expanded. And he actually ruled in favor of the umpires 
and uh, to the chagrin and disappointment and surprise of the owners who never used him again. We should make clear he was out of office at that point. He right? was out, he was out, of the office, out of office at that point and, and hard to be a, uh, um, to be a uh, an arbitrator. Well, because of all that, Nixon, unlike a lot of presidents who would throw out a first pitch and then sneak out of the stadium in the third or fourth, fifth inning, Nixon stayed, won see the game. Remember his quote, I never leave before the, the game is over because you never know what will happen. Well, in top of the seventh in the press box, they made an announcement that all reporters who were going to either locker room would have to take the elevator to the locker room level before the middle of the seventh because the Secret Service was going to lock down the elevator until, um, until Nixon left. So many of us, myself included, dutifully boarded the elevator down to the, down to the what I call down under under the stadium. We were told that uh, in the interview area, there was an interview, there would be an interview area down there and that there would be large TVs on tall, tall stands and we would be able to watch the rest of the game, wouldn't miss, uh, wouldn't miss a play. So we get down there and sure enough, there were big TVs on six foot stands. You could, you could easily see, nobody was gonna get in, in your way as far as seeing it. There was only one problem. The TV screens were blank. It was one of the glitches of a new stadium. They, they, they had audio, TV audio, not radio, TV audio, but no picture. Well, my assignment was to cover the American League locker room. And uh, American League had lost seven straight to the National League at a time when it really mattered to these guys. Pride was a really big thing then. So I'm thinking, I'm going to go to a locker room that's going to be pretty jubilant. These guys are going to be pumped. They're, they're going to win for a change. Bottom of the ninth, the National League rallies for three runs and ties the score, four to four. Well, all of us in the, in the locker, in the interview area, listening to the TV audio are thinking, gee, maybe we can go up to the press box and see the rest of the game, see the extra innings. One problem, President Nixon didn't leave. He wanted to see how the game ended. So we were stuck down under. Well, in the 12th inning, in the bottom of the 12th, Pete Rose gets the first all-star hit of his career. He was hitless in the all-star games until the 12th inning of this game. Moved to second, and Jim Hickman comes up, singles to center, and rounds third, Rose rounds third, and uh, with Leo DeRocher yelling, you gotta go, you gotta go, He's heading toward home. Ray Fossey is, is awaiting the throw from center field. And the thing about uh, Riverfront Stadium, it was the first all AstroTurf outdoor field. And uh, unlike a lot of uh, stadiums, the playing surface, that kept the dirt infield, they just had uh, sliding pits around each base and home, and home plate. As, as Rose is coming to the plate, Fossey is at the edge of the sliding pit. He's actually on the AstroTurf. Well, of course, as everyone who's ever seen the play or was alive then and uh, old enough to know, Rose knocks Fossey for loop. Only time in my life I've ever seen an athlete in any sport do a complete 360 somersault. 
Fossey's glove goes flying, the ball goes flying, Rose scores, and all of a sudden, I'm going to a very ugly locker room. The American Leaguers lost again, couldn't believe it, and lost in a very controversial way. I'm a young sports writer in 1970, in case you take it for granted now, 1970 there were no laptops, there were no cell phones, there were no iPads. You got your story and you found a payphone and you phoned it in to somebody who at the other end typed it on a typewriter and sent it down to the linotype operators. We didn't even have a front end system yet that was a typesetting system. So I had to work fast. The game started at 8.15, much later than games nowadays. Ran three innings long. I've got about 20 minutes to get a story and get it in. So I'm looking around, what, what can I get quick that will be a good story? And I spot Frank Robinson, who is as fierce a competitor as baseball's ever known. Well, Robinson started his career in Cincinnati and actually played with Rose for a few years. And so I thought, this is a natural. I had interviewed Robinson the day before, another story I had done in advance of the game, on his return to Cincinnati. So I thought he would remember me and, uh, um, and receive me well. It was a nice story. He didn't have any complaints with it. So I go over to him, and I'm thinking, this is a, this is a natural. I get the, the old teammate's reaction to, uh, to Pete Rose scoring the winning run. Frank Robinson is sitting at his locker on a bench, bending down, fumbling with his spikes. I introduce myself, try to say something to get the conversation started. Don't get any response. I ask him a question, I get a grunt. I ask him another question, I get a one-word answer. And as anyone who's ever done any interviewing for, for news, a technique is you ask the same question different ways, trying to get an answer. Well, every way I tried, I got one word. So finally I said, well, Frank, was it a dirty play? Do you think it was a dirty play? And his answer was, and this is the third quote that's the basis of the book, well, you saw the play, what do you think? Well, of course, I wasn't in any position to say, actually, Frank, I didn't see the play. I've been under the stands for the last six innings. And so followed him around the locker room and, and uh, the, uh, the book concludes with a few chapters that, uh, that look at the play and, and look at the reactions of of uh, American League All-Stars in the locker room after the game and uh, Fossey's reactions and comments years later. And uh, there's an interesting side, side light in the uh, concluding chapters. Um, while I was under the stands uh, waiting for the outcome of the game, uh, a TV crew from one of the local TV stations was uh, out at the airport waiting to catch Richard Nixon and they wound up sitting in the dark out there for two hours waiting for Nixon to show up because he stayed at the game. And so when he got, finally got out to the airport, uh, there was a brief time where they could try to interview him and he didn't have much more to say than Frank Robinson because they were asking him questions about politics. So, uh, so that's, the, that's the, uh, the, the gist of the story. Uh, a lot of people wonder, well, what does Ray Fossey think? And Fossey's described the play and he says he starts to go into his head first slide and Pete was one of the guys who really perfected that and kind of made that a, a common thing in baseball 
and then he sees me. He didn't go into his head for a slide because had he, he never would have made the he never would have made the plate. And so that's um, that's the uh, that's the story. Your questions and your questions. Yeah. The, the uh, now you you didn't see the plate at night as you say. You saw the tape sometime later. So I, I did. I, so it's, me, it's on YouTube. The the, the play is on YouTube yeah. now. You can watch it. And uh, well, let me ask you uh, this. Go ahead. To quote Frank Robinson, you saw the play. What do you think? <laughs> well, um, seeing the play 45 years later, the thing that strikes me is that um, Rose would have been safe by rule today because Fossey was obstructing him and didn't have the ball yet, um, hadn't received the ball. The second thing is um, Fossey was so far in front of home plate. He was a good four feet because the the dirt cutout area, the batting area and sliding area, uh, was about four feet up the line. He was so far away from home plate that Dick Dietz, who was the on-deck hitter for the National League, catcher with the Giants at the time, um, was between Fossey and the plate signaling for Rose to slide. That's how far in front of the plate Fossey was. It's not like Dietz was behind the plate and Fossey was at the plate. Fossey was so far in front of the plate that Dietz could stand between him and the plate. And, and, so, and of course he got out of the way as soon as he saw that Rose was going to hit him and, and then he managed to avoid getting knocked over where, himself. Where was Dietz standing? It sounds like he was right in the baseline. He was, he was as, third base, as the third base line comes down, if this is the plate and the space between my two hands is the sliding area, the dirt pit, he was right there. Okay. At the at the end of the AstroTurf, where the foul line enters the dirt, and um, uh, the ball arrived just about the time Pete did. That's that's what caused the collision. Pete hit him, and literally, if you watch the YouTube, he does a 360. His glove goes flying. And of course, he was banged up. Rose was hurt, um, but that ended the game. And this has generated so much controversy, this play. Um, and part of it is Fossey was never the same player again, was he? Well, you know, a lot of people say he, it ruined his career. And I don't think Fossey quite thinks that. What a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, Fossey, Fossey was a very young and up-and-coming catcher in that All-Star game. And, People thought he had a bright career ahead of him, right. maybe the American League version of Johnny Bench or something like that. 30 home run catcher. Certainly he did not have the power after that injury. His Probably his top home run output was in the mid to high teens. But Ray Fossey played another eight years or nine years and he played on two World Series champions with the Oakland A's. Now, Ernie Banks had a great career, never played in a postseason game as one example. And, and there are many, many, many really great players, including Hall of Famers, who never got to play in a World Series, much less win one, and he had two rings. So it's, it's, a, little, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little hard to say it ruined his career. It changed his career for sure, but I wouldn't say that it ruined it. Um, 
and I don't think he would. And, and in fact, uh, he's been a broadcaster with the A's for 25 or 30 years, and, and he says that um, he wouldn't change anything about his baseball career. He's enjoyed it, he's had a good career, and uh, wishes that might have been different, but certainly I think it's, it's not accurate to characterize him as bitter. Yeah. But he does have conflicting emotions, as you point out on page 91. The headline on in an interview before the 2013 All-Star Game reads, quote, Fosse still aching, but not bitter 43 years after All-Star Game. Next paragraph, the headline on a story before the 2014 All-Star Game reads, quote, Fosse still bitter about Pete Rose collision in the 1970 All-Star Game. So he feels strongly both ways, it seems. And, and I think looking into it more, the part that Ray Fossey really objects to and, and the issue he has with Pete Rose is not the play itself, it's Pete characterizing the night before as them having been good friends going out to dinner with their wives and with Sam McDowell and his wife and for some reason, and, and it's never really been made clear, but the big objection that Fossey seems to have is Rose characterizing their relationship as a as a as a friendly one, as a good friends, buddies kind of thing before this play, um, and I'm not sure why that is, um, but that that's the only if you read <coughs> if you read all that Ray Fossey has to say about the whole aftermath and everything, that's what he harps on is is Rose characterizing the night before, <coughs> not yeah. not the play or the injury or anything else. Now I have some more questions, but gentlemen, any questions? Got questions? Fire away. Um, I have a few questions. Uh, one that I'll save for later because it's not quite as related, but um, Frank Robinson, uh, I, I heard that he was never a great interview. Were you expecting more than what you got when you talked to him, or did you kind of go into that well, knowing that this is going to be difficult? I had, I had interviewed him the day before, and he was very collegial, very friendly, very outgoing, talking about, talking fondly about his days in Cincinnati and uh, how great the fans were and how much he liked Crosley Field and what great memories he had. And uh, he, he did acknowledge in that, in that interview that returning to Riverfront Stadium didn't have as much meaning to him as if he had returned to Crosley Field. Uh, but based on his willingness to talk to me and his, his, I'll call it friendly manner that day, I expected him to at least answer my questions. Frank Robinson was an intense enough competitor that I didn't expect him to be smiling and happy and and friendly, but I did expect him to answer my questions. And I was I was taken aback when he was unresponsive. How did he perform in that game? And um, he only played five or six innings and. I don't recall if he had a hit or not. He was the MVP the next year on the All-Star Game when the American League did end their losing streak. But that, that year, he watched a lot of the game you know, from the dugout. He was replaced in the fifth or sixth inning. And uh, 
Um, you know, I, I have no way of knowing if he, if it bothered him to be taken out so early, if it bothered him to not play more in Cincinnati, or if it was just seeing how that game ended and, and objecting to the play. And frankly, I don't even know if he saw the play or how much of the play he saw. We never got to that point. But uh, so, so when, when you finally saw the play for the first time, when was that? How soon after the game? Did <laughs> when, you first see believe it? it or not, it was a, just this year. This I never year looked at it. The first time you ever saw it? Really? Never looked at it. <laughs> never looked at it. So how did you write so, 20 minutes the game story? Well, I didn't write the game story. I was strictly doing a sidebar out of the American League locker room. Okay. And um, I wound up when, when, uh, when Robinson said, you saw the play, what do you think? My answer was, Frank, nobody cares what I think. They want to know what you think. <laughs> yeah. And then I followed him around the locker room, and my story was based on his interaction with all of the American League All-Stars that he stopped and talked to. And then at the end, I, I asked him, what, I said, I, I still didn't know what he thought, so I said, well, Frank, what would you have done? And he told me, you gotta read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the interesting thing about Robinson, I felt I could do this book um, based on, I, I, I was lucky, uh, really lucky, the librarian at the Cincinnati Enquirer gave me my clips. I have a wall of book, clip books about this wide. Um, they would, back then, they would clip the newspaper and glue them to uh, manila sheets, thick manila sheets, and put them in books. So that if you wanted to go back and look at your clips, you could pull out, and the, and the books would be in a time frame, March 70 to December 70 or whatever. And when I uh, left sports and went on, I later at the Enquirer became city editor, assistant city editor, and then city editor. And when I left the sports department, the librarian asked me if I wanted my clips, and I said, I sure do. That'd be great. He gave them to me, and I've had them all these years. So when I started working on this book, I had my stories from the last game at Crosley Field, the first game at Riverfront, my advanced stories. Uh, before the All-Star Game, my game story that, or my sidebar that night, my coverage of the World Series that, that uh, October, September, October, which incidentally, ironically, included a controversial play at the plate, which is tied it all together. Um, but when I, so I felt like I could do this book pretty much based on what I had and what I knew. I wanted to interview one person Fresh. That was Frank Robinson, and he declined. No. What's he doing today? Hmm? What is he doing these days? Uh, well, he, he, you know, after his playing days, he, after his managing days, um, he went to work with, in the commissioner's office and had a variety of positions um, in Major League Baseball. I believe he uh, has a, he still has a title with Major League Baseball, but Frank's in his late 70s now, and I think he's mostly retired. I still remember what a shock it was in baseball when Cincinnati traded oh. Frank Robinson to Baltimore. It was a controversial it is trade. easily the worst trade in Cincinnati Reds history and one of the worst trades in baseball history. Yeah. And uh, um, I, I, I 
found out recently from someone um, a reason, the, the likely reason that trade was made. There was friction between uh, uh, Bill DeWitt, who made the trade, and Frank Robinson. And DeWitt finally decided that he just had had enough of Frank Robinson, and so he traded him, claiming he was a, quote, old 30. That's right, that's right, <laughs> that famous but, quote. Uh, yeah. But that, that quote was haunted DeWitt the rest of his life, and uh, that trade haunted him. But the, the back, the behind the scenes story is that there was such uh, friction there that uh, DeWitt finally just said, I've had it. <laughs> How foolish. Bad idea, you know. <laughs> Something like that. Only Frank Robinson is the only player in baseball history to be the most valuable player in both oh, leagues. Right. Yeah. Did you have some more, Steve? Uh, more questions? Yeah, a little, a little unrelated. Can I? Yeah. Regarding Pete Rose, should he be in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> I think Pete belongs in the Hall of Fame as a baseball player, as a hitter. I think what he did in gambling as a manager um, certainly is wrong and deserves a punishment. He's been punished for 25 years. I would like to see some kind of um, resolution that acknowledges, that recognizes his, his exploits as a player because he was a... Um, he was one of the greatest players ever, and a self-made player, not a gifted player, but a guy who absolutely extracted the most out of his ability. And um, there's, a, there's a really interesting book about, about Rose now, and in it, uh, it's called uh, Beat Rose, an American Dilemma. And in it, players that he played with, wherever he played with them, almost without exception say they were better players when they played with him when he was their teammate because of the way he approached the game it forced them to play harder and to pay more attention to detail because they didn't want to be embarrassed by by Rose's approach that's quite a statement when you think about it and uh, um, I, I think uh, I, I think that that says a lot about Pete Rose as, and his Hall of Fame worthiness uh, as a player. The other thing that was I found really interesting in that book is a lot of people, I think many, many people think that if baseball reinstates him, that he'll go to the Hall of Fame. And that's not true. The Hall of Fame has its own rules and they changed the rules to uh, prevent Rose from being on the ballot back when he this this whole saga began and unless the hall of fame changes its rules he won't be eligible for the hall of fame even if he is reinstated by major league baseball picking up on that just a little bit what comes through in the book though back in 1970 he was not yet a great star by oh. any means he had not been an mvp he had not played in the world series he went on to play in many of course after and, that including later that fall against and, the Orioles in the World Series, but he was not a great player at the time. He was a reserve in that game. That's right. Uh, Henry Aaron was the starting right fielder, and Rose came in as Aaron's caddy. That's, that's absolutely right. And, and again, talking about what has changed, another thing that has changed about the All-Star Game and about Major League Baseball, in 1970, starting that season, that season that has become so famous for, for what happened in the All-Star Game, 
Pete Rose signed a contract that made him the first $100,000 singles hitter, which was his stated goal when he, when he made it to the big leagues. I want to be the first $100,000 singles hitter. $100,000, not $10 million singles hitter. $100,000 singles hitter. Nowadays, players wouldn't, I think, would think twice about going in the way Rose did because they don't want to put their 10 or 12 or $15 million a year contract at risk by getting hurt, maybe ending their career. Especially in an all-star game. You know, maybe, yeah, yeah and, and, and they may do it in a World Series. They may, they may put it all on the line, but not in an all-star game. And, and what happened to the all-star game? 20 years later or 25 years later, the game ends in a tie because they run out of pitchers. And the, and the managers treat it like a spring training game. Well, we'll just call it a tie. You know, and, and pitchers don't pick. I mean, there are, I, I cite a couple of instances in here where, where pitchers in relief pitch three or four or five innings. I mean, it was nothing for a, for a pitcher to go into an all-star game and, and pitch at least three innings. But now uh, starters only go two and hardly any other pitcher pitches more than one inning. And that's, that's all the money in, uh, you know, in, in play there. They don't want to risk uh, hurting anybody. You know, a guy like Dizzy Dean, you know, his career was cut short, short because of, of arm problems that were directly traced to an injury he suffered in an All-Star game. But that didn't keep them from playing in, the, in years after that and going all out. One of the things that we talked about uh, the other day that uh, I would like to have asked Frank Robinson and didn't get the chance is whether he would, how he would have handled if, if he had been on second base with the winning run for the American League in that same situation, if Dick Dietz had been at the edge of the AstroTurf as he came around third, what would he have done in that same situation? Because I can tell you, sliding, you, will never, you are never gonna get to the plate. You are out. If you just made a conventional slide, you were out. And if you tried to make a head first slide like Pete Rose was going to do, you were going to get hurt and you still were going to be out. And I'd, so I've always wanted to ask Frank Robinson, how would, you have, <laughs> how would you have made that play? What would you have done differently? Because there was no other way to score, I can tell you that. When you contacted, tried to contact him recently to ask for comment, he didn't say something like, you're that young whippersnapper from 40 years I ago. I never got to speak yeah. to him. Oh, I went okay. through Major League Baseball. You have to go through the commissioner's office, and yeah. commissioner's office, the PR department responded that Frank uh, didn't grant interviews for, for would books. You, would you <laughs> say this was uh, at least in the top five most historic home plate collisions in baseball? Uh, I talk about that in a book, and I list a few, and, and I'd say it is the number one, number one. the number one uh, home plate uh, uh, collision of all time. And it's one of the probably top five all-star plays of all time. And whether it's number one or not depends on when you were born and what, what decades you watched baseball. I'm sure if you talk to somebody who saw plays in the 30s or 40s or maybe 50s, they'd say, oh, that was absolutely the most. I mean, it's hard to argue with Carl Hubble striking out five straight yeah. Hall of Famers, which he did in an all-star game. That's pretty, 
That's pretty remarkable right there. Uh, there were a couple of dramatic home runs that decided all-star games. Um, so there were, there were, in fact, some extraordinary plays in all-star game history. This is <coughs> certainly one of them, and the others are never debated. To this day, 45 years later, you've got these people who say, Pete Rose did exactly as a baseball play. He did what he had to do to win, played to win, that's the way you play the game. And you've got these people who say, that guy, that's a guy's a bum, he ought to be in jail, he shouldn't have done that, that was a dirty play, blah, blah, blah. And you, you won't convince either of the other. It just, that's, and there aren't many plays, uh, I don't know of another play in an all-star game that evokes that kind of division of opinion. And you have a quote from the Cincinnati Reds historian, Greg Rhodes, in the book, quote, the, Ro Ro pardon me, the Rose-Fosse collision is one of the five most memorable moments in All-Star history. And I don't mean in Cincinnati All-Star history, we're talking about all-time, all-everywhere All-Star memories. Yeah, and I, I, I would agree with that. I, I, yeah. uh, but it, 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 it doesn't quite stand alone because there are, there are other memorable ones and the the one that that I would argue is competes with it is Carl Hubble that's a that's an amazing yes. strikeout I mean pick, pick pick five players now Miguel Cabrera Mike Trout Albert Pujols pick two more and then pick the pick Clayton Kershaw and having strike all five of them out in a row you know in an all-star game that I mean it's just amazing that that he could do that um, but there's no controversy to that play, to that, to that moment. This one is not only memorable, but it's controversial. People are d divided over it. And so that's, that's kind of what makes baseball. Um, I have to, I have to, I'm excited sure, yes, about this. Sure. I got to, I got to tell you that, uh, the, the issue of USA Today Sports Weekly, which right. came out today, uh, it's their all-star preview issue, and they have an excerpt in it. And I love the headline on this excerpt because it really captures the book. Ear witnesses to history. That, that really describes yeah. what, uh, what this book is all about. We, we, uh, there were many of us who did not get to see the most famous play in the all-star game. And by today, we were taping the show on July 8th, and so six, six days from now. Six days from is, now, yeah. Is the All-Star Game returning to Cincinnati. Now, this one, this game was at Riverfront. At Riverfront. I, mis I mistakenly said earlier it was Crossley Field. The game was played at Riverfront. Riverfront Park. Stadium, yeah. and there was actually another game there uh, in 1988. By then, I believe it may have been called Synergy Field. Riverfront Stadium was renamed, uh, and then they tore it down to make way for Great American Ballpark, which is where this one will be played. But the, uh, the, the impetus for doing this book now was the 45th anniversary of that game and, and, it, and it being played in Cincinnati. And uh, quick story, um, I learned about the All-Star Game coming to Cincinnati on its 45th anniversary of that game by uh, uh, going to the Reds Hall of Fame a couple of years ago at the suggestion of my lovely wife, Melanie who uh, has been a big big cheerleader for me and a big booster. And we're there in Cincinnati a couple of years ago, and she says, you've always wanted to go to the 
Red's Hall of Fame. We've got an extra day. Why don't we go? Now, who has a better wife than that? <laughs> so I went, and while I'm there talking to him, I find out the All-Star Game is going to be there in a couple of years, and I'm thinking, oh, perfect time to tell this story, which I've carried around for 45 years. But also, you didn't start off with the idea of writing a book. You were telling me that's tell a story. That's right. I, I, my original idea was to uh, write a magazine piece. And I actually put one together. I, I, I drafted one. And I contacted uh, a, a number of magazines, either in Cincinnati or Ohio, or places that I thought this would be a timely topic. And uh, none of them wanted the story that I wanted to tell. They either weren't interested at all, or they wanted me to change it to make it more contemporary, or to make it more in the, in the in, you know, in 2015. And uh, that just wasn't the story I wanted to tell. And uh, as the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, this might make a book. I think I'm going to try to make a book out of this. And that's what I did, and I'm glad that it worked out that way because I think it's a pretty fun story. And when I contacted Sports Weekly about it, they were, they were the opposite of all the magazines. They were, couldn't wait to get an excerpt. They were jumping at it. So it all works. It's funny how those things work out, but it all yeah. worked out for the best. You know, we talked about changes from the All-Star Game 40 years ago and, in, and the intervening years. Another change, of course, is that the winning team, their league will be the home, uh, home, home league in the World we'll Series. We'll have the home advantage in the World Series. Is this and, a good idea or a bad idea? Well, um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a really good idea because um, the, the teams that wind up in the World Series may not even have the players that decide who wins. I mean, you're, 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 the assumption, the premise is that the teams in the World Series represent their leagues, and so their leagues want them to have the home field advantage. But the reality is that just by the nature of the All-Star Game, and especially the way it's played today, the, the teams that have the most at stake may have the least influence over the outcome of the game. And so uh, uh, I think it was a lot more fun when uh, the league presidents, they don't even have league presidents now, but when the league presidents would go into the locker room before the All-Star game and give their teams a pep talk because they wanted their league to win. Rose talks about that, talks about Warren Giles coming into the locker room and saying, we got to win this game. And uh, today, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, today it would have to be the agents going in. <laughs> yeah. Sandy, what do you think of that? about the, you know, the, this game deciding who's going to host the World Series. Yeah, I, we had a text yesterday that I think captured it perfectly, that back in 1970, that it didn't count for anything, but it mattered. Yeah. People yes. watched it and were very interested in the outcome, and one league dominating the other was a really big deal mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of pride and bragging rights and all that. And today it counts, but it doesn't seem to matter as much. Yeah. Fewer people watch the game. There are more yeah. alternatives, and I, I think that's that's the perfect way of describing the contrast. Yeah. That they, they've artificially created a mechanism by which it counts, but the public doesn't believe it matters as much as the public did back then. Yeah, the, the, the public, the fans aren't fooled. They know 
the guys don't play quite as hard as they used to. And uh, as I point out in the book, the All-Star Game used to be able to stand on its own as an event. Now you have to have the Futures Game and the Home Run Derby and all these other things to, to try to make it a... a, a, a is, where did they get those ideas Big from? entertainment <laughs> event, you know? So uh, lots changed and uh, um, it, was a, it was a special time and I'm really glad and feel fortunate to have been a part of it. Denny, thanks so much. Thank and you. also, now this is available on Amazon, I assume? Amazon, or, right. Uh -huh. okay. How about in Denver bookstores? Uh, Barnes & Noble on uh, Colorado Boulevard okay. has it. Okay. And uh, those are the two best places. I have a website, comservebooks.com. You can order it there. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to and at, the, and at the Reds Hall of Fame, if you go yeah, to Cincinnati. So I just uh, want to mention that concludes our program. Uh, I'm Bruce Goldberg, board president of the Denver Press Club. Program is brought to you by the Denver Press Club, the Colorado Pro Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists, and please check out the Denver Press Club website at denverpressclub.org. Thanks for watching.